Today's episode is episode 191 of Unconventional Humans Podcast. Today's episode is called The Ethics of Ambiguity. So today's episode is based on Simone de Beauvoir, her book, The Ethics of Ambiguity. I read that recently and I took some time to think about some things from this book. So Simone de Beauvoir, she was a French writer intellectual existentialist philosopher political activist she's a feminist socialist and social theorist in this book she does touch on socialism like a lot of the book is centered around the idea of freedom and the ambiguous nature of life facing that staring that in the face so in this book, there's a few key things that got me to think about. First thing was dealing with ambiguity. From reading this book, I realized how difficult that is to do. Or it made me appreciate it a bit, a bit further because in this book, Simone explores that. She puts some words to that. It seems to be a core foundation of existentialism is the idea of living in an ambiguous world. The word absurd was a word that I picked up on in this book. So absurd is the search for answers in an answerless world. So that's the great paradox of existentialist philosophy, I think, that you're searching for answers in a world that won't give you concrete answers. That's the ambiguous nature of life. So Simone, she described different types of people. I think it was the subman, the serious man, and the nihilist she touches on as well in this book. The language in this book is quite interesting because she uses the word man in this book to refer to, I get the impression that it refers to men and women. It's just a term that she was using at the time. That's my impression anyway I got from that. Because I think Simone and her other works, a big portion of her work was around the idea of a woman's place in society and challenging that. So when I read this book and I see her referring to men, the word man all the time, my assumption would be that she's referring to man and woman but using that word I guess the other thing is it's a translation of the book anyway. It's an English translation of the French book. She would have originally written it in French. But I digress. Come back to my original point about she different categories of people she categorized in this book. And these people were, I guess they weren't willing to face into the amb- ambiguity of life in search of freedom. So she talked about the serious men. I really resonated with the serious men. Because the serious man, she describes the serious man as a person who clings on to an ideology, a school of thought about the world, and it's deadly serious to them. So they believe that the world is a certain way according to this school of thought. So you could take somebody's religion, you can take somebody's school of thought in philosophy or in psychology. And what I think the serious man gets from behaving like that is 
a sense of security. It protects him from an ambiguous world. It gives you a sense of known, even though the known mightn't have a very solid foundation. It's a feeling of security that comes along with the known. So you'll you'll see these people in the world even today, plenty of people like that, where they're not willing to really look at life and sit in the fact that they don't have a final answer to it. They don't have something where that can comfort them, that they've got an explanation to everything. You can look at religion in that way, that the stories in religion are comforting. They're comforting, but it's a false comfort. I think that's what this book explores, that life's a lot more ambiguous than that. So that was the first thing that this book got me to reflect on and contemplate on, just the ambiguity, the ambiguous nature of our lives. The next thing it got me to think about was individualism and what that means to me. So this book got me to think about the relationship between the individual and the collective. I know, I think Simone was, she was, a, she seemed to be a proponent of some socialist ideals. I don't know whether she was fully, I don't think she was fully Marxist because in this book she's outlining, it's actually quite a, it's quite a difficult read if I'm honest about it, this book. Uh, it's my first book that I've read that I've been exposed to maybe existentialist philosophy. But she seems to, because in the way she talks about freedom, she talks about it in the sense that the individual, if the individual's goal is freedom, they can only accomplish that by setting other people free as well. So she talked a little bit around the fact that you could have some people who will believe that it's in other people's best interest to oppress them. So I think the example she gave was slavery, where the people in charge justify them being in charge and oppressing the other person because they have this belief, whether it be true or not, that the person being oppressed can't deal with freedom. Freedom is a very interesting thing because I think we can easily assume we all want freedom, but I suppose what's a more of a greater freedom than ambiguity? That could potentially be the ultimate freedom, and that's something that not a lot of people will strive for, to live in an ambiguous world, because it's also a very disorientating world, because I suppose the ambiguous world there there's no concrete limits holding you in, but there's also, you're dealing with nothingness, which is an unnerving thing to, to deal with. So this got me to think about the relationship between the individual and the collective, because Simone talked about how it's not real freedom if my freedom if in order to have my freedom, I oppress others. But the ultimate goal is to aim for your freedom, a freedom that would enable other people's freedoms instead of oppressing it. 
So I can see how she'd be thinking about socialism. But even the idea of freedom in this book as well, it's it it this book delves into questioning what is the point in doing anything? Because in order for a man to be something, he has to negate just being right now. Like in the service of being something else. So the way she talked about it was quite, I suppose, elaborate. It was uh, difficult enough to wrap my head around. If I'm going to sum it up in, in my terms right now, what I struggle with would be I put a lot of time, energy and effort into creating things that my hope is, is that it moves me forward and it helps other people. But at the same time, it's it's how do I know that for sure? Like this book delves into meaning. So ultimately, what actually what I got from this book ultimately it, it's the it's the meaning I attach to something. It, it's the intrinsic meaning. So objects in the world they don't have like an intrinsic meaning other than the meaning that I give them. And so this is what this book questions a bit around. I suppose it questions around the dilemma of, of being a human being in a world where you're setting yourself up to do things, to grow. I feel there are driving forces within us that can move us forward. But to where? That's the question. And what does it mean? What does any of it mean? So... She talked about the serious men, and she also talked about the nihilist. And the nihilist... Now let's read how she described the nihilist here. She says, like, the nihilist... So the choice to be a nihilist, to, to, to engage in nihilism. A choice like this is not encountered by those who, who feeling the, the joy of existence, assume it's gratuity. So I think the paradox... The great paradox of nihilism is that you recognize that nothing has inherent meaning, that life is pointless. There is no objective ultimate meaning outside of yourself and that anything you do, it's pointless. There's no meaning to it. But the paradox to that is that the nihilist believes he's right in thinking like that. So he's forgetting that he's as right as he is wrong in an ambiguous world. So there's a lot more nuance to it. So the, the nihilist is just as bad as the person who thinks there's inherent objective meaning in the world. It's the same trap, just an opposite ends of the spectrum. And then she talks about the adventurer as well. I think, did she describe Nietzsche as the adventurer? So the adventurer denies that he's a member of the collective, skewed on the side of individualism, and does what is meaningful to himself rather than what would also be useful to the collective. I think Nietzsche could have been categorized as the adventurer. So the adventurer there, I think that's something that I've identified with at points in my life. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad 
character to create in yourself, especially for somebody who has been just a faceless entity in a collective, meaning that you never had a sense of individuality, real individuality, that your sense of identity and belonging came from being a part of a collective. So I don't think it's a bad thing if you go off and become an adventurer and maybe are more skewed towards individualism a bit maybe too far i feel like first and foremost to create something create your corner of the world that's going to make a difference to you you need to first and foremost figure out what is important to you what do you value what do you want to see come into the world to really feel that shit out first then i think if you're also improving on active listening paying attention to your environment your surroundings noticing what you like what you don't like noticing also what other people like and don't like because i think in the world there could be similar people to you but they might be at different stages in their journey of acceptance self-acceptance so they might have an inkling that they want something but they don't know what it looks like or they might know what they want but they're too afraid to say what they want so that's what you're dealing with so i think the adventurer if he goes off he or she goes off discovers a bit more about who they are what they want what they value and then they turn towards the collective and see who are like-minded people in that collective that my creations can then serve i think that that's kind of how you can tie the adventurer to an individual searching for freedom that will also impact the collective in a positive way. Like that's that's the intention. So there's a few things I wrote down in this book, a few, t- few different sentences and paragraphs that I found were well articulated. The first one here is, ties back to the serious man. The recourse to the serious is a lie. It entails the sacrifice of a man to the thing, of freedom to the cause. So that's a very short sentence, but that that encapsulates a lot in that there. So first of all, you're calling out the serious men. Because these serious men who have latched onto ideologies, they can be terrifying. They can be people that really make you feel afraid because of their conviction in what they believe to be true. But when you look at it here, you can have a bit of insight, a bit more insight, a bit more compassion potentially for the serious men when you realize that this person has sacrificed himself to a thing and in cause instead of his own actual real freedom. So there it's like the the cause would be the ideology, the belief system that he's bought into. So you can see in that sentence, perhaps the serious man even knows it. That's why he's so serious about giving way to the lie because I think that potentially the serious man feels like the more he gives weight to it and strongly believes in it the more true it becomes which obviously doesn't it doesn't work like that but it digs you deeper into denial and uh, a delusional state but again it, I suppose the, 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 the comforting thing for the serious man is that he's got a story that makes sense to the world for him. Gives him a sense of comfort and security that might not be real, that isn't real, but uh, it's comforting, I guess. 
In another point, she says, Man's unhappiness, says Descartes, well, it's Descartes that she says this, is due to him having first been a child. And indeed, the unfortunate choices which most men make can only be explained by the fact that they have taken place on the basis of childhood. So that resonated with me. There have been choices I've made over the years, which I feel have definitely been impacted by my experiences growing up as a child. That unfortunately, as a man, you can make choices that are governed by the traumas of life that you went through as a child. And when I say trauma there, a major trauma for me that I would, that I would see as a trauma is when you have to hide parts of yourself that you are taught are not welcome. They're not worthy parts. Uh, if you want to belong, they have to be hidden. Oh, was a movie I watched recently, Legend, I think. Tom Hardy plays the Cray twins, the two two Crays. At one point in that movie, it was the, I don't know what the twin's name was, but he was the one that was more, uh, he had more psychological problems. Well, I suppose they both are psychological problems, but he, he said at one point that you make yourself sick when you hide who you are. And I think that ties into this here that when you've learned to hide who you are as a child, then your decisions you're going to make as a man will not be in your best interest, the real person you are. They won't be in, they won't serve the real man you are because the real man, parts of him are hidden. And it's, it's the decisions you're making that are covering up the real parts of you and making you sick. So I thought that was a, an interesting she made in this book she what I liked about this book was that she she brought in uh, like Descartes there she brought in what he said there she she brought in things that Sartre Jean-Paul Sartre said she brought in even references to different books I've written them down that I might give a read so yeah I thought that was quite interesting as well the way she brought in things like that and she mentions a little bit I suppose because of the era she was she was uh, born in and she was in she was French she was born in 1908 she died in 1986 so she was around during the wars with germany she obviously was very young at the first war the second war though i suppose she was a bit older uh so she touches a little bit on it does come up in the book it comes up in the book about socialism fascism germany the french occupation and even here she talks about the purpose of festivals, which is something I hadn't ever thought about. So what she said about festivals here is, that is the reason why societies set up festivals, whose role is to stop the movement of transcendence, to set up the end as an end, e.g. the celebrations when Paris was liberated from German occupation. So that was an interesting thing I'd never thought about. What's the purpose of festivals? And... It makes sense her explanation of it there. Purpose on a, on a psychological level, I guess I'm talking. I, that was just two sentences from it, but I think in the other paragraphs she kind of explained it and expanded on it a bit more. But what I got from it was that festivals are there to to celebrate that you've arrived and you've arrived at 
a destination because otherwise if you don't have these milestones if you don't have something to mark an ending point to stop the movement of transcendence then what would happen is that you you're full time focused on the future because that movement of transcendence that movement into the future is infinite it doesn't end until you actually die and who knows after that but if you don't mark these milestones then what would happen is that let's take the example of france being liberated during the german occupation they get liberated they don't celebrate it with a festival and what happens is you just move on to the next thing worry about the next problems so you don't really take the time to let it sink in you reach a milestone and uh, i think that's the point she's kind of getting at with the festivals that's the purpose psychologically and another thing she talks about another few sentences here about democracy so a democracy which defends itself only by acts of oppression equivalent to those of authoritative regimes is precisely denying all these values Whatever the virtues of a civilization may be, it immediately belies them if it buys them by means of injustice and tyranny. I think that speaks to a lot of things in society. Just take, just even what she's speaking about there is, it's enforcing, I guess, it's enforcing, so it's taking, enforcing democracy on people in the same way. I get so you're opposing an authoritative regime the negative the negatives to that by doing the exact same thing as as you what you're complaining about an authoritative government would do so we i think we even see that today we, we see it in so many different things it would be i suppose when the left wing goes too far so i'm all for liberal ideas and people being themselves but when you start imposing limitations on other people's speech you start imposing limitations on when you start making them see you in a certain way i think that's when you're going from liberal to dictator it's a very subtle line so that i think that speaks to this here taking a democracy by imposing the values of a system that you are opposing so that was another thing there that was eye-opening. And the last quote I want to just mention here, just talk around this. She said, and if the soldier's eyes open, he too asks, who is he to command me? Instead of a prophet, he sees nothing more than a tyrant. That is why even every authoritarian party regards thought as a danger and reflection as a crime. It is by means of thought that crime appears as such in the world. So that sentence there for me spoke to, she was talking about in authoritative regimes, totalitarian states, where it's not encouraged to think, for the individual to think for himself, because it's dangerous. Because if the individual starts thinking for himself, he might start seeing what's in front of him. So instead of seeing the prophet, he sees the tyrant for who he is. So that's in regards to an authoritative regime. But think about that even just in our own life. Like how often in your day-to-day life do you come across somebody who places a lot of time and energy and importance on reflection, self-reflection and thought, who seems to be thinking about things and speaking things that 
are very different to the everyday conversations you have. Take it back from the authoritative regime, and I'd question if you're living in a world where you're having pretty much the same conversations every day. Why is that? Is that the way the world is, or is there something else amiss? Because these things are like they're very subtle. I feel like you don't have to have an authoritative regime to feel oppressed. And I suppose it's taking my own life. I've had to really work on being okay with self-reflection and thinking, thinking through things, actually enjoying that. So that for me would signal that the environment wasn't set up that way for people to do that. If it feels weird to do that, then it's not the natural default state there. So that's something I'd reflect on a bit more too. So that's, that's the last thing I wanted to talk about there. Just reflect on that. So there are the main things I wanted to cover today on the ethics of ambiguity by Simone de Beauvoir. I'd recommend giving it a read. Like I said, I found it, it was a difficult enough read, but there was just a lot of things to think about and tie it back to your own life and reflect on. So I did enjoy reading this book. So that's it. If you enjoyed today's podcast, leave a rating and a review, watch it on YouTube, then subscribe to the channel. My latest book, The Edge, Finding Your Creative Edge, is out and available on Amazon. Link in the show notes or below the video on YouTube. And that's it. Hope you enjoyed today's episode and I will speak to you in the next episode.